throughout the years that you've been reporting uh, on the country, has Bashir been in power the whole time? Of course. That's Mohamed Bal, a roving correspondent for Al Jazeera. He's in Khartoum, the capital of Sudan. I'm Imtiaz Taib, and this is The Take. The problem in Darfur through peace talks was in Sirk, Libya. I started covering Sudan in 2005, and it's been 13 years now. And he was, I mean, he was in power, he's been in power for about 30 years now. I mean, people who are under 30, they knew only one president in this country, and that's Omar al-Bashir. We're going to get back to Mohammed in a bit. But first, I want to introduce you to someone else, also in Khartoum. She was three years old in 1989 when Omar al-Bashir became president of Sudan in a military coup. My name is Sulafa Abdelhamid Talama. I'm a 33-year-old and I'm specializing in internal medicine. Sulafa is a doctor. I've always wanted to be a doctor all my life. Since, since I was a young girl, I wanted to be a doctor. I believe, I still believe, this is, this is where you can help people, you can make difference in people's life. Salafa comes from a family of doctors. They grew up in Sudan and Saudi Arabia. Four out of five of her siblings also finished medical school. And right now, having so many doctors in one family, that's a pretty terrifying statistic if you live in Sudan. And that's what we want to tell you about today. The harder things get for President Omar al-Bashir, the more difficult it is to be a doctor in Sudan. For more than two weeks, his opponents have been calling for him to step down. But Omar al-Bashir says he's going nowhere amid a crisis he blames on international sanctions. Anti-government demonstrators are once again calling for the resignation of Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir. But Omar al-Bashir has ruled for 30 years and remains defiant. This is unprecedented. Never has Sudan seen protests last for so many weeks straight. Not since Salaf has been alive. Because this is the pure voice of the people, Every, everyone has been supporting this protest. It started on December 19th. There was a bread shortage in the town of Atbara in the northeast. And that's when the first protests broke out. Not only could people not buy bread, there was no cash in bank machines or gas at petrol stations. And medicine was in short supply. Thousands took to the streets. But Bashir's government cracked down. The government says 29 people are dead. Protesters and rights group say it's closer to 40. It's a crisis. Some say it could become an actual revolution. But at the very least, it's a real threat to the decades-long presidency of Omar al-Bashir. Sulafa was watching this all unfold from afar. She was in Ireland, where she's doing her residency. She's still very connected to Sudan, though. She got her medical degree there and plans to practice in her home country one day. She had to fly home last month for a family emergency. That's where I reached her on the phone. I want to take you to January 17th, the day your brother was killed. What do you know about what happened? that he was out there helping the wounded inside the clinic. That's, that's what we know. Like almost everyone else in her family, Babakir Abdul Hamid 
Salafa's brother, was a doctor too. On January 17th, Dr. Babakir was shot and killed at a protest in Khartoum. Just a few days earlier, our correspondent Mohamed Val arrived in Sudan to cover the unrest. Already there were weeks of protests in Sudan, the longest wave of protests against the government. Uh, dozens have been killed and uh, it was the worst situation the capital Khartoum has seen for years. Uh, and the worst thing, a doctor was killed when he was trying to help the wounded and when he was there for a humanitarian purpose. It was an emotional incident among many Sudanese here and uh, because of the confusion around how he was killed and claims and counterclaims about who shot at him and so on, the government denying it, his family claiming he was killed by security uh, officers. So I decided to go and uh, know more facts. You went to where he lived uh, to find out what was going on. What did, what did you do? How did you get there? Yeah, initially I was advised uh, to take uh, all precaution measures because it's not uh, condoned, it's not acceptable for the government that uh, members of media should go and interview families of the slain protesters or doctors and so on. So I had to do it by night uh, under the cover of darkness and was taken by uh, some members of of the protesters themselves, you know, to spirit me into the house. And what was he doing when he was shot? I mean, they told us that he uh, collected his uh, medical kit and he went there. He established a makeshift clinic to help the wounded and he was inside the house, very close to the place where the protest was taking place. And he, one of his sisters told us that... Uh, he had some two critical cases inside the house. And then he was he was he just mentioned to the people with him that he's he will try to to get these people to the hospital to have some specialized care. And he went out raising his arms peacefully. He was uh, actually, according to his sister, uh, trying to show them that he was a doctor, that he was not one of the protesters. I don't know what happened, whether he, he was just given a sign of peace and he turned his back or they just loaded their guns and he turned his back, but he was shot in his back. Just shot, shot at him. That's what happened. That's what, as far as, I, as we know. He was shot dead. A doctor who may have been shot by government security forces. It raises a lot of questions about how Omar al-Bashir is treating his people. Mohammed kept reporting. This case was a big deal. People familiar with what happened said Dr. Babakir's body had several gunshot wounds. We were able to get a copy of his post-mortem x-rays, which showed what's been described as six objects scattered across his torso. Objects which look a lot like bullets. A forensic expert was brought in for analysis, and he confirmed Dr. Babakir was shot from behind. And so Mohammed aired his report. Sudan's security forces and police deny any role in the killing of protesters. Police never used any live fire at any protest site or on any other occasion. We never use live bullets in any situation. Salafa doesn't know what happened to her brother for sure. She's still trying to find the truth. She knows doctors are being targeted, though. Her sister, her one sibling who isn't a doctor, was out with a group of protesters, guys and girls, and got caught. Her sister told her what happened. 
When she was captured, and then they they seated them in the ground, and they asked them, if there is any doctor among you, just step aside. Doctors who were making this trouble, and we just we want you, we want the doctor, so please step aside. And no one came out. That's how I know that doctors are targeted because like th- this is two stories from my home. My 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 brother who was killed after after declaring that he was a doctor and my sister who was captured, thank God she was not a doctor. It's just so hard to understand. Targeting doctors. People whose job is to save lives. Salafa and her family aren't the only ones making this accusation either. There are multiple reports of security forces running into hospitals, firing guns, and spraying tear gas. It seems there are no red lines for security forces in Sudan. Even hospitals are in the firing line. In what there are also reports that more than a dozen doctors have been arrested since protests began. Security forces patients and doctors who have walked out on strike in protest. Amnesty International is condemning the attacks and the arrests. The doctors have noticed too, and they're afraid. We reached out to several for this episode. A lot of them didn't want to talk. One, Dr. Ahmed Al-Sheikh, head of the Sudan's doctors' syndicate, was arrested soon after we spoke. So what's so threatening about doctors in Sudan? When you talk to them, they tell you, you know, they know more than anyone else how the poor in the country are suffering. Uh, They treat people on a daily basis. They see how people come to their hospitals uh, without uh, money, without uh, any kind of means to buy medicine. And Salafa agrees. She knows what it's like working in Sudan. She worked as a doctor there during medical school. She loves her job, but she gets depressed when she can't help people, especially the patients who have no way to pay. Sometimes the doctors and nurses will pool money together to pay for patients' treatments themselves. Salafa says this isn't the message Bashir's government wants to let out about his country and his leadership. I believe that the regime is very careful that the voices of the people will not reach the world. And they came out in, in many occasions and they denied what's happening here. So what I'm sure of is this regime is trying to uh, target whoever can communicate the voice of the people outside and whoever is trying to help the people. This is why. Why doctors are threat. And they have been better organized than any of the uh, professional associations in the country. They have a unified body. They can uh, communicate their voice or the people's voice to the, to the world. So the government knows that if doctors are to continue their activities without any hindrance, probably these protests will gain more momentum. Mohammed. Give me an idea of the sort of history that doctors in Sudan have when it comes to protest movements there. Yeah, doctors played a major role in the 1985 uprising against the government. Hope of an end to conflict came in 1985. That uprising ended the regime of former President Jafar Nimeri. A general strike and mounting public anger led to President Dumeri being overthrown while on a visit to the United States. 
from that time on, they knew the power that they have. They knew the the leverage that they have in this society being, as I said, one of the most educated professional classes and the most respected and the most needed as well. And since that time, they were the most organized, the most united, and until now they are keeping this, uh, this advantage over uh, other professional associations, and that's why probably they are also leading this movement. The president... Omar al-Bashir is saying these protesters are trying to end his regime. But he's also blaming these shooting deaths on what he's calling infiltrators. Is there any sign of that from what you've seen on the ground, the presence of so-called infiltrators? Well, that's interesting because I I want to take you back to the case of uh, Dr. Babakar Abdurrahim. His family said he was killed by, by members of security. The government said he was killed by an infiltrator. And President Omar al-Bashir himself mentioned Dr. Babakar Abdurrahim by name, and he said the weapon that was used to kill him doesn't even belong to any of Sudan's security or military or police forces. However... I don't know how many people in Sudan believe this story. You know, people are divided about it, but the majority of people tell you, you know, this is just a story put up by the government. Uh, not many people really are, you know, taking this uh, account seriously. For days, protesters stood outside Dr. Babakir's home waiting for answers. Sulafa hasn't given up hope. What I'm sure of is the truth will come to, to the surface at one point, you know, because it always does. And the protests are continuing with more doctors' arrests. You've covered Sudan for a number of years, uh, have have traveled uh, to the country many times. Um, you understand the sensitivities when it comes to reporting from the ground. Um, were you concerned when this story aired, uh, when you did the, the, the report uh, on Dr. Babakir? Were you concerned that it might not be taken well by Bashir's regime? Oh, absolutely. As protesters chant, peaceful, peaceful, they are drowned out by gunfire and tear gas. I was very cautious and uh, I consulted with my colleagues in the bureau. So is the breaking into homes as security forces severely beat anyone. I mean, they didn't ask me not to do it. They didn't try to discourage me, but they they hinted and sometimes they said clearly that it could it could even get the bureau itself in trouble, not just myself. <laughs> but uh, uh, that did not discourage me because I wanted to uh, report the reality of what's happening in Sudan. And I couldn't just stay uh, idle and watch people being killed and uh, a situation like this uh, uh, going on without uh, doing my job. My job is to report uh, the facts and to report the incidents uh, neutrally. And uh, so I went ahead and, and covered it and I just waited. So far, Mohammed's been able to stay in Khartoum and keep reporting. And for Slava, saving lives is still her job. But now she's spending her time afraid for her own life and her family at home. 
Can you just sort of describe what it's like being at home right now? How is everyone feeling? Terrified, lack of security, fear of the future. We don't know what's going on. We know we are under surveillance. We know people coming home and asking different questions. Are you concerned that the people who are still coming to your home to offer condolences may not actually know your brother, but are there to observe your family and to to try to get information from your family? Yes, some of them, yes. And this isn't just about doctors. Fear is clearly a trait of Bashir's rule. He's wanted by the International Criminal Court for war crimes in Darfur and has been called out for sending more than 12,000 child soldiers to fight alongside Saudi Arabia and the UAE in Yemen. Now, with these latest protests, the United Nations Human Rights Chief has voiced alarm over excessive force. The US, the UK and Norway have also voiced concern. But so far, it's just voices. Mohammed's met the man. He interviewed him back in 2007. And what he said then seems pretty current to his rule today. It's almost like his philosophy on leadership. We're going to play some of it here. Because there can be no development without security. There cannot be any development in Sudan without security. What did he mean by that? He's not a politician. He's just a military man. So when he came to power in 1989, he described the situation where the country was under threat because national unity was under threat, territorial integrity was under threat, uh, the economy was down, the dollar was very high, inflation and so on. And now, 30 years later, these are basically the same problems that the Sudanese people are uh, struggling with on a daily basis, the same problems that are causing these protests that we see now. I was just going to say, that sounds like exactly what's happening right now. And worse, a third of the country was lost when South Sudan got its independence. So, I mean, people who oppose Omar al-Bashir, they have a lot to criticize him with. When South Sudan broke off in 2011, it took three quarters of the country's oil wealth with it, hitting an economy that was already down. Last year, the U.S. lifted sanctions after 20 years, but the damage had been done. And now Bashir is spending 70% of his budget on defense in a fractured country filled with armed groups fighting his regime and each other. And people can't afford bread. There's a shortage. So there might not even be any on the shelf to begin with. And that's what protesters are saying, that Bashir hasn't been managing the country properly. What's interesting about the timing of these protests... um, You know, we're talking at a time when it's roughly eight years since the Egyptian uprising, which is Sudan's neighbor to the north. It had what we call the Arab Spring. Uh, Tunisia was before that. Libya was after. Bahrain, Syria. Even then, at that time, people were looking at Sudan, looking at Bashir. Some believe that a revolution similar to those across the Arab world is inevitable. And at that point, he'd been in office for around 22 years or so. It's now been 30 years. 30 years of Bashir. 
Do you think we're seeing the beginnings of Sudan's own Arab Spring, if you will? Or is this something else? In 2011, when he was asked about the possibility of an Arab Spring in Sudan, because there were some protests, remember, in 2011 here in Khartoum, uh, when those revolutions uh, broke out in Egypt, uh, Tunisia and other countries, And uh, interestingly, he replied, no, in Sudan, we never have a spring, Arab or not. We have only hot summer all the time in Sudan. (laughs) So, you know, so it's like, I mean, I think he wanted to say that, you know, situation in Sudan was always different uh, climate wise and also politically and so on. Remember that the regime of Omar al-Bashir is rooted in 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 an Islamic ideology at least by name. On the other hand, when you talk to the government uh, supporters, they tell you, look at what happened in Libya. Look what ha- at what happened in Syria, in Yemen. Do you want Sudan to follow these countries, to be also a failed state full of rebel groups fighting each other, bloodshed, chaos? The slogans and the chants and the demands have drastically changed now. They're no longer talking about prices. They're no longer talking about inflation. They're talking about regime change. Remember, their main slogan is Tasqut, Tasqut Bas, which is they should fall, they should fall, and that's it. regime cannot protect a young doctor performing his duty of his humanity and just protect, defending a wounded people inside the capital of Khartoum, this is a failing system. This is a failing system. There is no, that means there is no security in this, in this country, even if the infiltrators, as he said, killed him. This, that, that means that there is no security. And then what? Then what? Then what? In Salafa's yard in Khartoum, a tent still stands. And people are still milling about. I can hear people coming in and out. Are, are a lot of people still coming to your home to, to offer their condolences to your family? Yeah, they are. Traditionally in Sudan, um, there will be a tent for, for some protection for one day. But we kept the tent for seven days because my mom always wanted to make my um, my brother's bridal for seven days. Wedding, you know, wedding for seven, traditionally seven days. So she, she wouldn't let us to, to raise the tent after one day. Sulafa. Uh, please accept our condolences. I'm very sorry. Thank you. The Take is back. You're going to be hearing from us every Friday with stories from all over the world. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Follow us on Twitter and get in touch with us there. We're at the take underscore pod. 
This episode was produced by Amy Walters, with production help from Morgan Waters, Dina Hezbe, Priyanka Tilve, and me, Imfiaz Taya. Ian Koss was the sound designer. The show's lead producer is Graylin Bashir. Special thanks on this episode to Mohamed Ball. And if you want to know more about what's happening in Sudan right now, we did a story a few weeks back with Hiba Morgan called Darfur, The Forgotten Conflict. Check it out. And we'll be back next week with more.